Filthy Armenian Adventures presents Los Angeles, A Reverie Under the Stars, our first live event on September 23. A night of magic, mirth, fire, and brimstone with some of the greatest people in the world, including Jack Mason from The Perfume Nationalist, author Adam Lehrer from Safety Propaganda, the one and only girl from Baku, Mommy Milkers, Borhazian illusionist Garin Hovanissian, DJ Boy Toy, and surprise friends to be named later. For tickets to the show and party, email filthyarmenianTIX at gmail.com. That's filthyarmenianTIX at gmail.com. Today's episode is brought to you entirely by the rug merchants, cigar singers, and oligarchs of the night who subscribe to our show on Patreon. If this show means anything to you, strongly consider showing your support by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash filthy Armenian. And get access to more than twice as many adventures as you find on the free feed, including the most intimate and scandalous ones. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. underestimate the desire for a woman to have a daddy take care of her. Nevertheless, you're right. There is more to it than that. There's one thing more important than anything else. For instance, finding the right type of girl is important. But even as important as that is, there's one thing more important. There are a lot of guys out there who can turn a woman out. But to keep them turned out, that's the mark of a true mock. And then, turn out multiple women and keep them turned out, that's a real motherfucking mock. And to do that, it requires you to do one thing above everything else. What's the secret? Simple. Fuck them good. Fuck them real good. And fuck them real good, real often. That's harder than it sounds. You can't fuck them like you fuck your girlfriend. You can't fuck them like you fuck your best friend's girlfriend. You can't fuck them like you fuck your father's mistress. That's fucking for fun. This is work. For work, they fuck customers for money. For work, you fuck them for money. And trust me, they are harder to please. If you want to keep them in line, you better fuck them good, and you better fuck them a lot. Which means you're gonna have to fuck them when you don't want to fuck them. And you have to fuck them good. And the more bitches you have, the more fucking you're gonna do. More bitches means more fucking. No sleeping on the job. You get lazy even four goddamn days, that bitch is gonna wake the fuck up. The spell will be broken, and when the spell's broken, it's not like, okay, that was that, see you later. When the spell's broken, that bitch fucking hates you. 
That bitch doesn't just hate you. That bitch wants to see you dead. And maybe she tries to kill you. And maybe she tries to steal your shit. And maybe she calls her father. Maybe she calls her brother. Or maybe calls the boyfriend she had when she was a little girl and asks him to save her. And now it's him coming after you with a knife. Or her brother coming after you with a pistol. Or her father coming after you with a fucking shotgun. Or she takes the pussy you taught her how to use to recruit some joker to kill your ass. In other words, a mock ain't got no days off. There ain't no fuck-free holiday for a true mock. You can't be bored. You can't resent it. Nobody gives a shit if you're in the mood. You're her man, and you take her there every fucking time. And the key? Different positions. You don't have to fuck her better than any other man. You have to fuck her different than any other man. You want to know what she gets out of it? That's what she gets out of it. And you know what? It's a good fucking deal. She takes care of you, and you better fucking take care of her. Yeah, she gives you money. But mon ami... You're gonna fucking earn it. You are listening to Filthy Armenian Adventures. being blown we are on the air with monica and veronica to discuss the little matter of what a woman wants as revealed in the opera salome but written by oscar wilde and with music by richard strauss and um these two ladies You've met Monica before. She is the girl from Baku, one of the more popular episodes we've done. Veronica is new to the show. And both of these ladies will be present at the first uh, live Filthy Armenian Adventure in Los Angeles on September 23, which if you want to attend, you'll have to send an email to filthyarmeniantix, T-I-X, at gmail.com. Early bird tickets have already sold out, so get yours before the price goes up again. Uh, and it's going to be a very special evening where we're probably going to continue the conversation we're starting today, I have a feeling. Um, this idea, the idea for this episode was first proposed by Veronica when, after I did the Oscar, Oscar Wilde at Heart with Jack and Zach. Veronica, you, you mentioned that you think that this opera, which is based on the myth of uh, Herodias, which we can, you know, summarize for the uh, for the plebeian masses 
who don't have it, who don't have it, like can't recite that myth from heart. But you told me that you think that this is the ultimate drama of female desire. Yeah, I do. Um, there's like a long, I guess, explanation for that, which we'll get into. Um, but I do consider it like the, first of all, I consider it probably the first modern opera. And because of this, I consider it one of like the best depictions of almost like modern femininity of this like unbound, um, unleashed feminine desire that you can't really, it's like a Pandora's box situation. Like you can't really bind it back. It kind of represents a, a break from the old kind of way that women desired or like desire was represented in in opera, but also kind of in art in, in general, at least to me. Is it? Now I have, you're talking to a man who has never watched an opera, except for the Nutcracker that my mom used to take me to as a kid every year um, at the, one of the big LA theaters, probably the Amundsen, um, which I, you know, was okay. But that's not an opera, though, is it? That's a ballet. Never mind. Yeah, Nutcracker's a ballet. I've <laughs> never been. I have never been to an opera. Never seen an opera. Never thought. You know, it's not my thing. Obviously, it's just not my thing. You can tell it's not my thing. I think if you just you know see the fact that I'm male and I am several stops on the gay train short of opera land. Like when it comes to being able to appreciate opera, but I, this one finally hit me. Uh, I was we we were watching. The so explain the exact production. It's the Met, um, a recent production with. Uh, do you have the Do you have the names on the? T- I can I can look them up right um, here. I know that's. I can never pronounce her name correctly. Curita Matila, the Finnish soprano Salome, and that production is by Patrick Summers. I don't remember anyone else involved though, off the top of my head. Yeah, it's she's great as far as like Carita Matila. If that, is that, yeah, Matilla or, or Matilla, I don't know. She, she's, Matilla, yeah, I, I really like her. Um, she was great. Yeah, she's a she's a great uh, she's great at that role. And actually, I think um, she was like coaxed out of retirement for that production because um, she had already uh, stopped singing Salome because she thought she was too old. Um, and then they like convinced her to come back for that Met premiere run of the Summers production, which I actually really don't like the Summers production. Um, but no, she's she's a great Salome. Now tell me what you don't like about it, because I'm like I'm like a brand new to the idea of opera. And of course, I haven't seen any other production of Salome. Salome was written by Oscar Wilde, actually kind of as his life was uh, unraveling. Um, it was sort of the last thing he it was like one of the last things he did that along with importance of being earnest, it was like in the process of finding a production and all this stuff kind of as his, as, as he became, as he ended up getting, um, imprisoned for homosexuality. Um, and so it's just, it's, I didn't, wasn't even aware that he did this, like until you told me, I mean, until I read his biography just recently for the episode, I wasn't aware that he had written an opera and it, it's kind of an interesting parallel to his own, to the, to the, to, to his own consumption in the flames of desire, um, which, aren't female, you know, his are not female. He was not, he is not a female person, actually. But it's easy to see him connecting with the, uh, the, the kind of lustfully deranged Salome. Um, of I think both him and Tennessee Williams are very good writing. 
female characters. With Tennessee Williams, it's mostly women who are on, or on the verge of insanity because of aging or other things that are happening in their lives. And I think in this case, it's just uh, a very good portrayal of a woman possessed by, obsessed by a man who would not have her or has, have, has no desire to be with her. Who would not even look at her. Who would not even look at her. Who refuses. So let's talk, let's get the, let's get the, the audience in our, um, up to speed with the plot, with the, with the myth. Uh, Veronica, could you, could you lead that like summary of what is going on here in Salome? Of like the plot of Solomon. Yeah, like the myth, like the like the myth. It's like we're we're set in. So this is what kind of confused me because I read the Flaubert version. I told Monica about this. Flaubert has a in three tales. The third tale is Flaubert's version of this myth, um, in which Salome doesn't even come until like the very end, and it's almost very dry and detached. It's very weird. It's very it's the opposite of the opera in a way. Um, Salome is just sort of like very very dryly recount like depicts this uh, in his in a biblical manner what's going on uh, saint john the baptist is imprisoned is that he's in like he's in he's kind of like he's being he's he's detained and they're kind of figuring out what to do with him uh this is post of course after after jesus um i think has been crucified correct i think so i mean it's honestly i um I listen to the opera way more than I read the play and I read the play more than I read the Bible and I haven't read the play that many times. So, <laughs> so you <laughs> yeah. I am with the OG, but I mean, I guess <clears throat> like the opera itself. Well, interestingly, like the, the Oscar Wilde play is moderately different from the opera itself. Um, Cause what happened is that uh, when Strauss saw it in German, he, saw it i think there was a story i read like the night that he went to go see it he met with a cellist he knew in the orchestra mm -hmm. like he worked with and he found them in the audience and they were both like they met up afterwards and the cellist was like oh you should write an opera about this and he was like i already am so the moment he saw it he was like this is going to be set to music and he was already thinking about it and something he did was that he cut a lot of the play itself like the play that Oscar Wilde wrote has more detail about the char other characters other than Salome. So it kind of goes into the backstory of like Herodias and Herod and like the page and Naraboth. They have more characteristics, but when he rewrote the thing, basically he didn't actually rewrite anything. He just slashed things. And he also changed the character of Salome a little bit. So in the opera, what happens is that there's a party at Herod's. Um, and at the same time, the John the Baptist is trapped in a cistern, which is his jail. Um, and at one point during the party, Salome comes out on the balcony and she hears him t talking. I suppose. I mean, like it, it's he's saying prophecies, um, and she becomes so entranced by it that she gets somebody to pull him out. And when she's pulled out, she falls in love with him. And then they put him back. And essentially, she bribes her stepfather to she cannot she like does the whole like you know like the feminine wiles to get his head essentially um after dancing the dance of the seven veils she gets his head she makes out with the head and then she's killed um i think another strauss quote about it was that he called it a scherzo with a fatal conclusion which 
a scherzo is like a, a light movement of a sonata usually. Like it's supposed to be like fun and funny, um, which I think really encapsulates the, the mood of the opera. It's very, it's like a black comedy to me is how I see it. It's like a horrible, evil joke. <laughs> That's that's exactly how I saw it, too, which was like it was all I was confused, you know, because I didn't know. But it was similar also to the Flaubert telling, which is like there's a lot going on. I didn't even know what the I guess party is the way to put it. It wasn't clear to me what this degenerate kind of decadent uh, setting was, you know, where there's under there's a big hole where the where John the Baptist is under under the stage. And then everyone's just sort of staggering around drunk and clearly Herod's. A Herodias's wife, who's Salome's mother, but not his, but but his, his also was I think married to her, um, his brother first. So yeah, it's, it's not like, like his it's a whole incest situation going on. There's a lot of incest going on, and yeah, so like Salome's Herodias's stepdaughter, and also her his niece, and yeah, at some the, and also the, object of his desire. Uh, well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like. By that, it becomes clear. I don't know what the trigger is, but at some point, about halfway through the opera, uh, King Her- King Herodias says, "Dance for me, Salome. I'll give you anything to dance for me. Um, I'll give you half my kingdom." And then she said, and so he swears that anything she asks is hers if he if she does a little dance for him. Her dance is not even that erotic. It's very like. <laughs> it's very like um, it's very like cutesy if I was horny and I asked a woman to dance for me and that's the way she danced I'd, I'd cut that bitch's head off I mean that would be really I would not give her anything in my kingdom but apparently Herodias is ju- at least you would be justified in not delivering on your promise yeah at least you'd be yeah right especially when if the when the promise um, when the demand made is not for half the kingdom, yeah. is not for the beautiful emerald, is not for all the any of the riches or anything. The demand made is the head of St. John the Baptist on a silver platter. That is the demand she makes. And King Herodias is horrified by this because despite the fact that he's imprisoned him, he knows apparently, and everyone knows, that this is a man of God and this is a prophet and this is like not to be fucked with which is an interesting combination too. Do you understand that, like what's going on there? Because on the one hand, he's imprisoned, but on the other hand, they, they, they are in awe and fear of St. John the Baptist. Yeah, because there's this like dichotomy between like Herod is in awe and in fear of him and he's convinced that he is a prophet. Meanwhile, at the same time, Herodias is like, oh, it's nothing. Like there is this kind of like back and forth between um, you know, the paranoia and like fear that Herod has. And it's almost like, it kind of feels like a flip of, you know, usual male female dynamics when it's like the woman freaking out and the man being like, no, no, it's nothing. And this time it's flipped. Like Herodias is the one being like, no, he's just, he hates me. Um, don't take it seriously. Meanwhile, Herod is the one who sees you know, he like at many points during the opera or the play, he like talks about hearing wings flapping, like the angels of death are coming. There's like a big shadow. He talks about seeing blood. Um, like he has this very, you know, he kind of sees omens all of the time of impending doom, which I mean, he's not wrong. Um, meanwhile, his wife is the one telling him to shut up, you stupid bitch, essentially. His wife is because he's haunted oh, ahead, by Mike. his go, conscious. Go. 
it's he's haunted by his consciousness. This is a man who basically murdered his brother and married his wife. So, you know, he kind of feels like he's probably has to pay for it at some point. And the idea that he's keeping this man of God alive maybe gives him some sense of comfort. I mean, in the especially office, if he, oh, sorry, go ahead. Especially if he interprets his, um, you know, his prophecies as something that is going to happen to his enemies and it gives him some sort of peace. Yeah, it's like, because uh, I mean, in the opera, he's characterized by this very, like, um, like schizophrenic music almost like the beats are always like he's kind of always like offbeat or his music is always kind of running up on itself he has this like it almost sounds like he's constantly having palpitations um as he's singing and he has of course he's like a Heldon tenor which is funny because he's one of the Wagnerian voice types of this like heroic like very masculine like projecting tenor but at the same time he's this like insane neurotic um, again, because like this opera, again, it's a horrible inversion of like, you know, my whole, my, I guess we can get to that later, but like it is, it takes these like operatic tropes that have been established towards the end of modernity and inverts them on itself to make you just completely perverted. Um, which again, it's like you take the heroic man and you make him into this neurotic freak who like kills his family and fucks his like relatives, you know? Um, like it, everything is just this level of, decadence that it collapses in on itself eventually so what was the do you know what the reception was when this was first staged because um, it, it was as, very um I, guess, I mean it's still controversial like to this day and when it came out people were um it was people were torn about it like i think a lot of I mean, it, it caused a scandal to the point where it, there was issues when it was being restaged with censors and that kind of stuff. But then a lot of composers were really into it too. Like I remember reading that at the, not the original premiere in Dresden, but the one later on in Grass. Um, like I think Mahler, Puccini, Schoenberg and Hitler were all in the audience at the same time. Um, and Schoenberg was such a huge fan that he like got, you know, the full, libretto and score and apparently kept it on his piano for the rest of his life and you know there's theories that Schoenberg's atonality actually was inspired by Salome because he said like the first page of the score was one of the most beautiful things he'd ever you know like seen in terms of composition um so I think for artists it was a big deal but then for like the censors etc there was issues getting it restaged and even like critically a lot of people didn't consider it art they thought it was kitsch and I think because of the very nature of the music being so literally like the content and the music were kind of blasphemous. Oh um, yeah. Very blasphemous. I mean, that's what, that's the only reason I was able to actually buy in because in the beginning I'm like, okay, here's a bunch of people who can't say anything without shrieking it. And, and, you know, this is just the way opera is. Everything is sung. There's no like dialogue. It seems right. Is there ever dialogue? Is there ever just people talking in an opera for five for like, I mean, if there's too much of it, I think the term is operetta. Um, when people start like talking in between, it's like a play opera. But I think also in like German opera, there's the Sprechstimme, I think is the correct term. It's like the speak talking, which there is some in Salome and like later in like more modern German operas, there are some, but usually it's mostly mostly song. It 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 made a lot of sense to me the way every expression is um 
is like this is is belted uh, at the highest possible note kind of thing uh, for for the most part. I mean, there's a few baritones in there, kind of like there's a there are a few of the people who are who are kind of warning not to do something or whatever. Like the black guy, uh, there's two black guys in the production, <laughs> the Met production. A lot of black guys back there, and you know, as we know in that kingdom, um, and. There was a, there is a sense that like, you know, there's that, there's just this, there is a, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, as you said, it's like this, the way the facing down the, the angels of death and the, the kind of impending doom, which is basically, uh, which uh, the king feels in his bones the entire way and which we march toward because Salome cannot withstand this the negging that saint john the baptist does to her by refusing to even look at her and there's a there's this arresting line at the end when she has his head in her, in her hands and she's kissing making out with his head, severed head and she's saying like she says what's the line maybe monica you'll remember you should have looked at me um, you would have loved me or something like that. Yeah, like, if you looked at me, you would have loved me. If you looked at me, you would have loved me. You would have seen, yeah. yeah. So she thought, he, he, she's trying, she's implying that like, I, you know, I, I could have been your, I could have like, I could have been your savior in a way. I could have gotten you out of these chains. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. That's kind of the implication I'm yeah. getting is that she's implying that she could have been his soul. She could have been, she could have fixed him. From his, you know, persecuted uh, status, she could have understood his rebellion of the earthly realm. Is that, is there any element of that? Or is this just some deranged, lustful harlot who, who could not stand being negged? Well, I think, so like for me, my interpretation of it has always been that Salome is attracted to John the Baptist because he rails against everything that she kind of hates. Like, you know, when she steps out into the balcony, she's complaining about how she hates how all these people are looking at her and how the Jews won't shut the fuck up and how she's sick of it. And then, you know, she hears this voice that's essentially like saying to her, you are right to hate all of these things. And there is, at least in the opera, because of course, like, you know, some themes of the original, like in the opera, she is explicitly a virgin, which in the play, they make um, reference to the fact that she was probably raped by Herod. Um, like there's some little fixes and like one of the specific things that is done in the opera, I'm really retarded with music theory, but I think the, the keys that Strauss writes Salome and John the Baptist, and I think John the Baptist is just in C major and I forget what key Salome is written in, but they are essentially like, they create a dissonance. Like they are just like complete opposites in terms of like music theory. Um, and so like, I think that the fact that they are both meant to just immediately be like diametrical opposites to me implies that there is like a, you know, it's the tension of desire, you know, like immediately placed within both of their vocal lines. Um, which again, it's like, this is a trope that is done throughout operas, like you create these tensions between vocal lines, and then towards the end, they resolve. And of course, like, it's usually not done in this extreme and perverted way, but Strauss is just an extreme pervert. So of course, he's doing it like that. 
Um, and of course, so is Oscar Wilde, an extreme pervert. Exactly. And, yeah. And the extreme perversion is simply, um, you know, the thing, it's interesting because both he, he, the, the thing that connects him and you see, Monica said that he, Tennessee Williams also writes great female characters. Um, Tennessee Williams' female characters are versions of himself in drag. They're gay which, men. Yeah, he's gay men. He's it's, They're all gay men like himself in drag, yeah. which makes them very relatable and ironically because gay men have a gay men have a similar unlike straight men gay men experience uh the 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 rat you know the 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 kind of tragedy of aging to in a very deep and fearful like just dramatic way um especially it's it's kind of less the case now, I think, than it was in his time and through history. I think there's a little bit more normalization now of like being, you know, just being a being old, being a daddy and all that bullshit. Um, but especially in his time, youth is just youth is the name of the game when it comes to uh, homosexual desire and the notion of witnessing yourself age out of of youth and 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 like to sort of separate from the objects of your desire by an ever widening chasm is is horrifying and that i think it gives a real uh that it, it, i mean it can be at 28 you know like you can you can be you can feel old at 28 if you're a gay man in certain circumstances so i think that really does like you know that does inflame the the uh the stakes of of his female characters and it makes him relate very much um and i i don't know that oscar wilde had a, had quite the same urgency as as tennessee williams did in that regard but he definitely understood it for actually probably the separate reason of the fact that if desire is inevitably if defined by by unreachability like if if the ultimate beauties are what you can't reach, but you can perceive, then of course you know being um, homosexual in the first place in the night in the nineteenth century is uh, that makes you that instantly puts you on the unreachable side of things. I mean, you're reaching for things that, though they may be available, are socially are 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 socially uh, extremely uh, a taboo. Um, even you know. Even even if they're like acknowledged, wink wink, there's still so much. There's still such a distance. Like Oscar Wilde's addiction was to he was in love with that fucking retard, uh, uh, Bozy. scheming Bozy, that scheming bottom, eternal scheming bottom Satanist, whose father was also a Satanist, uh, atheist, his stupid fucking father, the Marquess of King- Queensbury, a shithead. Um, he was deeply in love with him and in love with other men too, but he was also addicted to rough trade and, and going to the, down to the stocks or whatever they're called, the docks, the stocks, the whatever the fuck, picking up, uh, uh, young man whores who were all too very willing, um, and who often blackmailed him. And he, this was like his, this was his grinder, you know, and he never stopped doing it until the very, very end. Um, he tried to go back to women after jail, after he had his his you know uh, post not clarity in jail and he wrote de profundis and he realized how what a selfish evil person Bozy was 
Although they later later became friends again, and he was disappointed again, and da, 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 and it kept on going back and forth. But he really had that personal clarity with De Profundis, which everybody should read, because um, it's also kind of a religious conversion in a way. Um, and and then he comes out. He tries to give he tries to give purity a chance by going to a brothel and having sex with a woman, a prostitute. And he describes that experience as it was like cold mutton. And that's so much for that. So <laughs> it was back to the boys after that. <laughs> um, so, you know, whatever. He, 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 this was one of the, this is one of the great kind of curses of his life that he had to deal with uh, a, a desire that basically extracted him from elite society, it, which he was so welcome in for so many years. Um, and he never, he could never quite, it was, it was, it was a, that was the ultimate pain of the, of his later life. Like just being this fucking shamed, shamed creature, uh, ostracized, a pariah, who, even in foreign towns, uh, people of position would be afraid to be seen with him and dine with him with a few exceptions. Um, even in his what? relationship with Bozy, so I watched this movie wild. I don't know how true that is. But he mentions that him and Bozy don't have sex. So he compares it to um, some sort of platonic love that Greeks would have between an older man and a younger man. When he coaches him and teaches him and the older man is more intelligent, knows more. And he would say something like, Bozy doesn't like doing it with me. So if an object of your desire has to be unreachable to you, and that's what Salome is about, in order for it to be a true beauty. So could it be a reflection of his relationship with Bozy? There could be an element of that. Um, I. It's funny, the biography doesn't get into them not sleep. It, it, beca- it definitely, I mean, all gay relationships take this kind of turn where they eventually become like uh, platonic brothers. brothers. Yeah, and uh, so there's probably, I'm sure that was the event, that was the overall arc of it. But from my understanding... I mean, they definitely slept with each other in the early, uh, the early parts. They saw. I mean, the whole fucking lawsuit is because they they is because Bozy's dad didn't want him Bozy to be consorting with Oscar Wilde, which he wouldn't stop doing. Now, I do think that what kept them together was that Bozy. This was all Bozy's doing, by the way. Bozy really he Bozy would bring all the all the manhoes from the like Bozy's the one who was the pioneer of all of all of that. Like he got him into all of that, um, all of that horn. So it was sort of a, I'm sure that's kind of what their relationship became. I don't know if he was tortured by the inaccessibility of Bozy, who was unfortunately all too accessible, I think to him, but I don't know that, I don't know that he was tortured by it, but I'm sure he was tortured by that very same, that very same dynamic, if not to Bozy, then to other people. They may have exaggerated that in the movie, you know, but I'm sure it was something that, that was, there was many opportunities for him to feel that kind of thing where you're kind of, you don't have, for all the opportunities physically that are available to you if you're willing to pay for them, you don't have ever or seldom that perfect union of, of requited love. Yeah. yeah. And also a lot of liberties that were afforded to Bozy, he was an aristocrat and definitely was able to get away with more. 
those liberties were not afforded to to Oscar Wilde, who actually had to write for a living and make money. Yeah, I mean, Bozy doesn't have Bozy's a fucking uh, just a, a no good. Uh, he, he was he has he has certain any he had certain like aspirations to be a writer. At one point, Oscar Wilde didn't he translate Salome into English? He, he did, and he did a horrible fucking job. It had to be yeah. completely redone. He was hired to translate Salome over everyone's objections. Oscar Wilde, you know, is trying to be as generous as he can be and, yeah, commissions him. And it was apparently absolute garbage. It had to be completely redone. There's no basically he did nothing. I mean, he wrote a book after Oscar Wilde died about their relationship, of course, cashing in on it. Um, I don't know that he maybe he wrote a few poems I know he did. Oh, he did write. So he was like the editor of the whatever, whatever at Oxford or whatever Abosi was, the student newspaper or whatever. Um, and at some point he wrote poems that were very thinly veiled, uh, homosexual, you know, dirty poems that he published. And those were used in court. In court. Like, yeah, against Oscar Wilde. So I mean, he was yeah. just the most reckless, like demonic creature. He, he, I think his life after Oscar Wilde was even wor- way worse. Like it was just this was just he's just getting started. And of course, inevitably, so did Oscar Wilde. Uh, Oscar Wilde converts to Roman Catholicism at the very end of his life, and and then at some point late late in his life, Bosey does the same and renounces his lifetime of homosexuality as uh, this and that, and it becomes, a, becomes like, you know, exactly what you would expect uh, a person of that character to become in now that he was too old to get any pussy. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's like a, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of different sources, I'm sure, for the, for the way Oscar Wilde taps into the operatic uh, severity and angst of Salome's desire. Yeah, I think also, like, sp- you know, thinking just about the the text of the play itself, I think it really lends itself very well to opera. Because again, the text of, you know, the Oscar Wilde version of Salome, the phrases are extremely simple and also repetitive. You know, like there's so much repetition in the play. Um, I can't really pull any out of my head. The cats are rustling. Um, but things just constantly keep being repeated, I think, usually in like cycles of three, which of course lends itself to a natural musical pace anyway. Um, so I think, at least for me, I think I almost I do find the opera almost better because you know in the text of the play you just have the text of the play, but then with the opera you have the added layer of the music underneath, and also I mean just driving the whole thing, which I think is really what reveals more of the dynamics going on in the play, to me at least. Um, like again, like the tension between Salome, I think. I just looked at the score. I think Salome is in C sharp and I think, and um, yeah, Salome is in C sharp and John the Baptist is in C. So like there's a tension between these two almost being, because that is like a, again, I'm stupid at music theory, but it is like a dissonant interval um, in which like things are almost, you know, when you hear like certain dissonances in music, um, there's, um, 
like you can have a harmony or a dissonance and this is i sound so retarded right now i'm sorry <laughs> trust me you're not the most retarded it is, one it is in like this. 9 p.m and i somehow i'm, I'm tanking but no like, i'm feeling i, like I get what you yeah did dissonance you have this tension between these two characters that i don't think really exists in the play which i think to me at least lends an air of the fact that she does desire him like it's not just a whole like he's negging me he's the guy i can't get therefore i want him more there is something but that's why that's why you have a more sympathetic perspective on salome and you kind of even admire her because i see her as somebody who had attention her whole life i only read the play i haven't seen the opera so i have no you know no opinion on it but like for me salome is somebody who had attention her whole life she kind of completely ignores the uh, the Syrian who's madly in love with her. He kills himself when she gives all her attention to John the Baptist. So she's not a sympathetic character to me. And then I don't even see what happens between her and John the Baptist as something that is insatiable desire. I think it was just maybe desire to be worshipped by everyone. And when she doesn't get it, she wants to punish a person who doesn't give it to her. I didn't see it as the way you saw it. but probably because you in from what i've read she's more sympathetic in on screen both on in opera and also later on screen uh, adaptations of salome i mean i come to this also from cuz like my big take on salome is that it's a demonic version of tristan and Isold. um you know there is the doom especially based on the ending of the opera which are are you guys familiar at all with Tristan? Because it ends in the in like the very famous Liebes Toad, which is the love death song, where um, after Tristan dies, um, Isolde sings the Liebes Toad, which is as she's dying, she's slowly her vocal line slowly melts into the actual orchestral line, and it ends in all of them just kind of being this one unifying mass of. Um, I think her final line is Hochtelust, which is like infinite desire. Um, like that, that is, you know, her passing on into death. And the whole structure of Tristan and Isolde is based on the Tristan chord, which is another like dissonant chord that requires um, a harmonic chord to be resolved. But then it doesn't resolve until the very end, like four hours in. So then you get this like tension again, like, like in Salome, the tension of those two vocal lines but in Tristan, it's this repetition of this chord creating, you know, these four hours of massive tension until the very end when she dies and she is like subsumed into the, the totality of the universe and desire and love. And you finally get, you know, the, the bookend to the chord. So, you know, um, it's this like very like long, prolonged, like, um, like sigh into the abyss, which is kind of like exactly what Salome is, but like the total opposite. <laughs> Like you have this like cacophonic like tension the whole time between, you know, like Salome and John the Baptist. And then you get, you know, Salome's Liebes Toad is this like rambling diatribe towards the end where she's making out with this like dead person the whole time, right? And then at the end you get um, the Salome chord, which is like the the horrible inverse of the, the Tristan chord, which I think, um, some critics described it as like the most disgusting chord in all of opera. And it it has, I think, 
there's part of the chord that is like beyond the instrument scope. Like I think it makes violins go under the lowest G, which is impossible. Um, so it has this like out of bounds, like out of control uh, characteristic to it. But again, it's like after she does, you know, the her whole like um, I finally kissed you <laughs> section. Um, I I should pull up the libretto, but after that's like her her libretto essentially instead of is sold like peacefully, like going into the next life alongside her beloved. It's like Salome is about to do this, but then it, you get the, you know, the Salome chord and it like, again, the decadence is toppling in on itself. And instead of this peaceful, like reunification with, you know, the totality of desire, she gets stabbed to death at the very end for being like outrageous and disgusting and like a monster. Yeah, so the king like, says, the last line is the king says, kill her, kill yeah. that woman. <laughs> After. Yeah, I think uh, one of my favorite lines in German is, uh, sie ist ein Ungeheuer, deine Tochter. I can't even pronounce it, but like, if you're pronouncing the word Ungeheuer with like the German vehemence, it's like revolting. <laughs> I love it. Ungeheuer? Does that mean like? It means monster. Uh, like, oh, ultra whore? Okay, monster. Yeah. Ungeheuer. Exactly, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm shocked. I mean, Liz, halfway through this, just being honest, like halfway through this, I'm like, well, okay, confirmed. I'm not an opera person. Um, and if it continued in that same manner, where, you know, like the in you know the typical kind of thing that I can imagine your the tropes of opera being that you're describing, even though I haven't ever sat through an opera, the fact that it got so nakedly. It got. It, it seemed to be just so nakedly honest toward the end. I mean, this is something that it's the opposite of an illusory, of an illu like an illusory romantic uh, climax. This is like, and it's not even that you know a crime of passion or anything like any of those melodramatic things. It's literally, it's literally this demand by her, which her mother supports because because that's an interesting a little side note too. Her mother, the king's wife is happy that she wants John the Baptist dead because John the Baptist said, you know, called her, a, said something bad about her. He called Made her a like, Babylonian whore. Called yeah. her a Babylonian whore. Yeah, right. Which, you know, spot the lie. And, and so she's like, yes, she's right to have asked. She's right to ask. He spoke, he, he talked back to me. Um, and uh, so of course, so of course, so she supports it. And, you know, the fact that, I don't know. Like I'm trying to, th I'm, I'm, it, there's some, there's an interesting, I think, parallel here with reality to that. So such that I don't think women, a pat, like a woman of that level of passion who are very desired. I don't know. I don't know how easily they take, they take it when they are rejected, not even rejected. It's simply that he does not, he doesn't like, he's, what is he He's benignly disinterested. <laughs> What's the phrase? Like he's not when he he refuses to look at her because she's so below his. She she's so like below the his concern in a way. Is that how you saw it, Monica? Yes, yes, exactly. He just he says that a lot of evil comes from women. Most of evil comes from women. So from that alone, he refuses to look at her, and she who is so used to be seen by everybody just is 
kind of taken aback because he refuses to see her. He refuses to look at her. And I don't see that as, as like, I, I don't see her being driven into madness by insatiable desire, something that I could understand and could relate to and maybe even, you know, kind of would be something that could redeem her in some way. I think she was just, she was just, you know, she's in, She's mad because he refuses to see her. He refuses to give her attention and she punishes him for it. Well, for he me, refuses I, to like her posts and retweet her. Well, she she starts like she has desire for him before he rejects her. Um, She's interested in him because he said bad things about her mother. And I'm sure there's some resentment towards her mother because, you know, even though her stepdad gives her all that attention her mother doesn't do much to protect her and shield her from it so i'm sure she has certain resentment and she is drawn to him because he says all those things about her mother what actually is interests her in him is the lack of attention towards her and she thinks she can win him over and when he she she can she she she, she punishes him for it he's the one man in the entire fucking uh kingdom who cares more about god than about her, than are about some hot, you know, temptress. He's a guy who cares about Nietzsche and not e-girls. Right. Yeah. The online insult. He doesn't only just ignore her, though. He calls her, like, a daughter of Sodom. And, um, like, he, he really, like, chews her out for essentially, like, something she doesn't really have any control over. It's like, a, you know, when the incels hit you with the, you have t- T-50s and there's nothing you can do about it kind of situation <laughs> well okay well let's let's yeah and I, I mean i'm thinking about you know as i said in the before we got started like there is an element of her that reminds me of the way women are obsessed with bap uh, because he's so he's just so like he's just so not looking their way and it just drives him into into you know wilder and wilder fits of obsession and at some point no, I think he's afraid. I think the reason he's he's escaped, he's like bouncing around the entire planet uh, and never in one place this two nights in a row is that he's just afraid that at one point some woman's going to want his head on a platter, you know, because he refused to attend the uh, the uh, uh, a literary evening with BAP banquet they threw for him in New Jersey um, and and accepted like pop in for two minutes and say, this is all lies and then leave. Um, but Veronica, you like you're the premise of this is that you felt this was the ultimate depiction of female desire. So if Mon, I mean, not Monica, Veronica, Monica thinks that that's not the case and it's more of an, 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 a nagging situation and not quite that of well, desire. Me, I don't really think about, cause again, I, I view this as like the, the, you know, the, the second coming of Tristan and Desoldes, you know, which has this beautiful, um, you know, transcendent ending, and then you get this, and it's, um, Salome is essentially, like, her desire is just this, like, all-devouring pit that you cannot control, um, which, again, it's, like, people, especially if you talk to, like, right-wing people, you know, it's, like, actually, like, women are the ones who have insatiable desire, not men, um, and to me, Salome is kind of, like, a female Don Giovanni, you know, it's, like, you have this, like, desire that escapes you, and you have to somehow, catch up to it but you can't ever catch up to it um like to me that's kind of what Salome is it it's just this like focused obsession that um she allows to totally consume her 
because online is it is, is it sexual in nature though? Isn't she a virgin? Yes, she is yeah. a virgin who has she all is. the male attention in the world that she she can have. You know, she's desired by the king himself, despite well, but like you know, him being married to, to her mother. So that I think um, Strauss changed from the original libretto because, like, in the original libretto, not the original play, um, she wasn't a virgin because probably like raped by Herod. And that there's also like more interplay between the other characters and like backstory about Salome and all of that. But in the opera, he kind of makes her this like, I mean, it's cut, she has a lot of parallels with the moon in both, no, right? Like you have, the, the moon is intensely like connected with her and people are always just projecting onto the moon the same way they project onto her, which is kind of how a lot of feminine identity is created and cultivated, I think it's like, you know, the ideas people project on you eventually become part of like, you know, the feminine mystique, etc. But I think in the opera itself, like Salome, I always kind of saw her as more like a femme cell. Maybe I'm just like speaking like, as like a teenager who was like listening to this, like at, you know, 13 years old being like, oh, fuck, like, you know, this is how, what it's like to like be, you know, you get leered at by like freaks and then like nobody really sees you for who you are. And that's all she wants, I guess, is in a certain sense. It's like, there's that line where she says, um, you looked at God, but you wouldn't even look, like you saw God, but you wouldn't even look at me. Um, it Because there is, of course, the tension between like, women want to be looked at, but then it's also like, why wouldn't you want to be understood? Which again, it's like the tension of, do you want to be desired or do you want to be seen in a certain sense? But again, it's like the, the issues with, to me with what is interesting about Salome, the opera is that there are so many contradictions, like, right, she's the, she's the chaste whore. Um, I think Strauss and like the librette, like the actual stage directions called Salome, the 16 year old with the voice of Isolde, which A, directly ties it to Tristan and Isolde, but is also another like impossibility because a 16 year old doesn't have that voice, like that, the Wagnerian soprano voice comes like, you know, you have to be like in your late 30s, 40s for that chest voice to develop. Um, so it is like an opera that is essentially like everything about it is kind of impossible. It's like, again, the, the music is out of bounds of the orchestra. Like you have, you know, you have notes that are out of the range of an instrument. You have this character who's like, you know, this like all devouring virginal whore. Um, you have like, it's essentially everything's the product of incest. You're in this like Jewish nightmare. Like it is this thing that makes no sense whatsoever. And I think that really does like, again, speak to the overtones of desire. It doesn't make any sense. Like none of it makes any sense. And then looming over the whole thing is Jesus, which is another like part that I wasn't even expecting to the tale. Like the, 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 there's talk of, you know, there at some point there's the, the black guy. An entire Talmudic debate between four Jews. Yeah. And in the, on the stage, they're in the cult curler. Like you have the rabbis with the curls and stuff. And the black guy is telling him, oh no, you see, he was at a wedding. He turned water into wine. I mean, in German, and and you know he he turned uh, uh, e girls into good posters. He did all these miracles, and uh, he it's it, they're like the rumors of Jesus. Of course, that's why John the Baptist is John the Baptist, and why he's considered a prophet. Um, but that's kind of like this ghost and offstage looming around. At one point, one of the lines is. 
the the rabbi asks, "Where well, where is he now?" He says, "Well, he's everywhere. We don't know, but he's everywhere. He's come. He's escaped. He's off to Jerusalem. Whatever." But the the line that we don't really know, but he's everywhere, is an interesting. But he's one. not the Messiah. Well, the Jew, obviously, yeah. The, the one Jew says, one of the rabbis says, he is not the Messiah. Oh, yes, he is the Messiah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's that, you know, classic debate breaking out as 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 this is all going down. Um, I, I didn't understand. At some point, somebody referred to as the Syrian. Good-looking guy. He kills himself. At, at, at one point when she's... Um, I don't. I couldn't understand what triggered him to kill him. The guy who who he's, Sepuki's he was himself. in love with Solomon. He's a simp. He was in love with. <laughs> he's a simp. He's insanely. Gotcha. She's the one that she that she uses to get John the Baptist out to see him because everybody else refuses. He's supposed to be under protection, and she uses her feminine charms, and she knows that he's in love with her. She tells him to bring him out. And then when she says all those things, she professes, you know, her love for John the Baptist. He kills himself. And she even refuses to acknowledge his death. You know, his death acknowledged by by everyone but her, which is, again, uh, She's kind such of, a bitch. Like, yeah she, yeah, she she just doesn't even acknowledge his existence at all. The poor, yeah, the poor, and he was a cute guy. I mean, at least the, the one they cast in uh, in the, the Met. Met, yeah. Yeah, he was kind of like, he was, he was, Syrian was a good way of describing him. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of looked like a kindly, maybe Christian Arab, you know. Um, well, uh, so Veronica, she uses her feminine charms in a very cold and calculated way to get what she wants all the time. And then one time she doesn't get what she wants, she murders the guy. I just, I just kind of well, fail well, to can... see. Again, I am going back to Tristan Salt, which I guess. No, but what does it have to do with the play itself? That's how, like, Trist- oh, that's how it is in Tristan and Isolde. Isolde is this like kind of spoiled. But it's a different play. What? But she, she's capable of love. I don't think Salome is capable of love. Well, I think she she's she loves like a narcissist, here. but you know, she I kind of mean, loves. The issue with opera is like everyone is kind of an insane narcissist because everything's dialed up to 12 so that's why it's like everything is just so extreme and you have to die at the very end everything's the most extreme version of everything possible which is i think why this is like a perfect play for for an opera because it's like the there's no subtlety to you know the human interactions of this it's like oh if she fucking hates the guy the guy's gonna kill himself and she's not gonna notice um i think even in the opera like he kills himself and only one person notices, I forget the name. It's like one of the pages who was in love with him, actually. Like, I think in the wild play, there's like more backstory about when he dies, the other, I forget what the name is. Maybe they have a name, but like they're cradling his body and she's like crying over him. Um, but in the opera, it's like the um, Herod and Herodias come out and Herod slips on blood. And he's like, whose blood is this? Like nobody even really realizes that he dies. He's just- Yeah, I remember of- the whose blood is this line. Kind of just and like the play, the they basically are worried that Herod is extremely superstitious and he doesn't like to see dead bodies. And that's the only reason why they're worried about the body itself. And then when he steps on blood, you know, his superstition um, kind of comes to life and he's uh, he becomes even more paranoid than he usually is. 
And what triggers exactly, because I didn't quite catch it, maybe it was just he looks at her. When What triggers his desire is like he, he, he's overcome with a fit of desire to see Salome dance for him erotically. I think was he there, gets drunk. Like, let he me, gets drunk. Because everyone's out on the balcony and he's so drunk that he's like, I want to see her dance for me. Um, yeah. Again, like the whole opera, the whole plot of this opera is just everyone gets too drunk. Everyone's too drunk. Yeah, everyone's just drunk and just, lo- which is great. I mean, it reminds me a lot of like Philadelphia story where the, the, the great screwball comedy where just everyone is just completely smashed in the wedding, the, the pre-party, uh, whatever, the wedding rehearsal party the night before. And in that, oh, also, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, where the whole time is everyone is just absolutely smashed. And it sort of sets the dramatic scenery more than anything else is that because I because I couldn't understand what the setting was, as I said, like, I didn't understand where we are. Oh, in the what, op- so I don't like that production. I know I mentioned this earlier. I don't I think it came out in 2008. Um I don't, to me, it just kind of feels like it's still under the shadow of 9-11. Um, like, it, it's just this, like, ritzy, like, Middle Eastern hotel, but it kind of doesn't have much of a sense of place or even, like, dramatic take on the opera itself. Not that this should always have a dramatic take, but if it's not going to have one, at least have it be straightforward. Um, like, architecturally, it doesn't make any sense. Um, and it kind of just doesn't really go much either way aesthetically to me. It's just very, like, limpid for an opera that is extreme, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I can't judge it against anything else, but it was it, it did seem confusing to me. Um, there was a certain, I there seemed to be... has a cistern. I don't get it. Like, why could it, yeah. I don't, it just doesn't make any, like, coherent aesthetic sense to me. And then, speaking of being post-9-11, there was that weird little position, there was that, like, weird little moment where the first thing that the king asks her to the, the the first thing she asks of the king is to bomb the twin towers, and then when he says no to that, they said, "Okay, fine. I want Saint John's head." Or what is it? What's the <laughs> word they use? Uh, what's the actual word? Jagja, uh, you know, in the in the opera for John. Johannes. Yeah, Johannes. Johannes. Yeah. Johannes head. I want. That's said, Hebrew for for John. Johannes head. I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I recommend this opera. I, but, uh, like, as a, so you were 13, Veronica, when you first heard this or watched this? Yeah, I first heard it. Um, I actually only saw it in person when I moved here, that Met production. Um, no, I was just, I, I've always really loved, I was a big, I've been a big Wagner head my whole life. Um, and then I got into Strauss, um, Salome and Electra, probably my favorites of his and they're both about like um insane women which you know makes them compelling and fun also like incredibly like modernist scores the likes of which strauss doesn't really do again um which is interesting because it's like the more extreme stuff came for him at the beginning and then he just kind of tapered off and became more i mean i guess that's kind of normal for a lot of artists right eventually you just kind of become less insane yeah, it's cape. It's um, a lot of artists sort of just sort of find their groove, and even if it's not always that they become less insane, but their their insanity becomes normalized. So what you would consider to be insane when they started no longer feels insane, even if substantively it might be you know 
more the same the same kind of thing. Sometimes it's hard to know the difference, you know. I mean, I'm I'm speaking out of my ass right now because I don't know <laughs> any of his work. Because it's like you have I like Strauss. I think did have some kind of like preoccupation with women. Um, because like these first two, like Salome and Electra, are about you know Salome, and then of course we all know the story of Electra. Um, you know, like two deranged hoes, and then for the rest of his, he does talk about like a lot of his operas deal with like women and intersexual dynamics, but they take more of like a Mozartian tone where it's more comedic and like funny and um, less damning. You know, like both Salome and Electra essentially are fucked by the end; like they they're dead. Um, but and the rest of his operas are more like light and, you know, it doesn't really have this like hellfire. Um, like you die for being like a woman, you know, um, which maybe he just chilled out and maybe he got some pussy. I don't or know. You die for being a deranged whore, deranged evil whore. Yeah, you, die, you die for being, for like giving into the pit of female desire. Like that is, you know, to me, like the truth of female desire is that it's just an endless pit. You just keep going down. Yeah, because male desire is sort of satiable no matter how insatiable it is because you just, you know, you're drained at the end. Like, no one can just keep on going. I mean, unless they're really a maniac. But female desire technically can be can be insatiable, like physically insatiable. You yeah, can just like- want, want to consume the entire world. Yeah, essentially, like, that's kind of, like, Solomon is kind of just a black hole, like, when she lets it rip, which is why the opera collapses under its own weight at the end, like, it can't sustain, that final chord can't be sustained, which is why she has to die, Um, which, again, is, like, the opposite of Tristan, where it's back before women reached modernity, and, like, you know, the id of, like, female desire was unleashed upon the world, it had a more harmonious ending for everyone, but now... You know, it's like the 20th century, it's all over, and you kind of see the bare face of, like, femininity for the evil it can be. I love that she's older. I, I love that What's-Her-Name is actually older in the production. She's Tilla. very good. She's really good, and it makes sense that she's older, even though, you know, on the page you're thinking, well, okay, obviously a, a woman who would inspire such madness among all the men of Matt would be 18, but... It made a lot of sense to me that there was just like this, like, just this, and her mother too. There's just this, like, reckless uh, storm of of feminine. What, what's the, how do you pronounce it? Chthonian, however you pronounce that. Oh, I don't think that's the right way to pronounce. The word Polya likes a lot. I barely say it out loud, but I know. It, I think somewhere in sexual. Chthonian. Chthonian is how it's spelled, but I don't know if that's how it's pronounced. I think it's pronounced in a far more wicked way, like Cthunian or something. I don't know. I think there's I, somewhere in the wild section of um, sexual personae where she calls Salome the first Chthonian woman. The first Chthonian woman. Yeah, there you go. So, she, she Chthonian is fuck, as far as I could tell. She's from the very beginning to the very end. Uh, she... she I mean, it's a great, like, it's a, it's a, it's a great way of, um, I like the fact that she's old and, and how it kind of throws an illogical thing upon the whole story, um, in this, in this production. Well, I think a lot of Salome's, not all of them, but 
some of the, for example, um, you know, Montserrat Caballé, the Spanish no. singer. Well, she was a very, she's a very good Salome. She has a beautiful, she doesn't have the usual voice type for Salome. She was more of a bel canto Italian singer, but she, if you look up her recording, she has, she does a great job. She's old and like obese. <laughs> Oh, and you can watch her dance the dance of the seven veils and it's um it's insane but like again her voice is so good at salome that you buy it which so even in movies and stage productions she's played by older actresses like rita hayard played uh played her and then um jessica chastain in the more recent production which by the way al pacino saw her on stage and apparently he was so mesmerized by by the play and her performance itself that he wanted to adopt it for a movie. I don't know if you guys saw that one. I did not, no. Never seen a play. But Jessica Chastain is a pretty, you know, she's not a young woman, at least, you know, now. So I guess there's a consistent thing of like older women playing Salome. I mean, that's also just like a consistent thing, consistent thing in opera where it's, um. I mean, now even more so where they're just like hiring people to fill in, you know, diversity quotas. But it used to be that you you could just suspend belief, you know, that like, oh, this beautiful youngest old is actually like a fat 50 year old woman. But the transcendence <laughs> of her voice would like really make you believe. But um, nobody nobody's I mean, I don't see the point of realism in opera speaking as a first timer. Because it's not realistic. Yeah. It's like people don't talk that way. People don't communicate that yeah, no, way. It doesn't make any sense. It does be yeah. It's like is that it sounds well, good. Which it sounds hard. good, and it's and it's it sounds it it sounds like um, it justifies the its extremities. You know, like it's it's like it's it's a mad it's madness. Like opera is madness. Opera is not sanity. Exactly. Yeah. Like I want to suspend my belief. Uh, what I don't want to suspend is my um, artistic, uh, what's it call it? My critical level. Like I don't want to go in yeah. there and hear sing like shit, which is too sadly par for the course these days. Um, but you don't want do to suspend my... your interest in beauty. You don't exactly. want to suspend your interest in, yeah. in a, in a, in a overwhelm in an emotionally resonating experience. Like you want, you want the extremities to connect to you to the unspoken, unsung uh, extremities of your inner life. Yeah, and that's why I think I don't. That's again why I think Solomon. Honestly, Solomon is probably one of my favorite operas, just because it does take everything to such a concentrated extreme. Also, Electra is also extremely good because it does take. They're both also like what less than two hours. This was Which less than two hours. Yeah, usually operas are like way longer. So I think there's something to be said about like, you know, like getting punched in the face really hard uh, one time versus like getting slapped softly for a long time. Like, I think these operas like really do just kind of kick you in the gut. Um, and then you have to go walk outside and pretend like you feel normal. Did this give you any strange ideas, fantasies as a teenage girl? Um, I remember as a teenage girl, um, when I grew up in Puerto Rico at the, there was the Museo de Arte de Ponce. I forget who it was by, but there was a portrait of Salome holding the head of John the Baptist. Um, and it was like real, one of those like very like Catholic paintings. It was like really bloody. 
Um, and I remember like being scared of it, but also mesmerized by the blood. Um, I don't know. I've always just kind of had like a connection, I guess, to just stuff that's like gory as a child. <laughs> it's like That's um, your Dia de los Muertos uh, background coming through, I guess. There's something very... I'm not Mexican. Come on. No, I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you said Puerto. I did not know you grew up in Puerto Rico. <laughs> I did. Yeah, it's like, sucked ass, man. Are you Rican? I don't like to. I like to think that I'm not. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like to think that I'm just simply American. Okay, okay. Growing up there, I hated it the whole time. Um, I mean, we could do an opera about you, like you know, like just refuse, like renouncing your Puerto Rican heritage and i would love to renounce my puerto rican heritage and create it for something else like if somebody in spain she's a direct descendant of spanish conquistadors so she should tell myself yeah (laughs) just when someone asks you what your background is be like i'm a direct descendant of people who colonized and read those natives columbus actually my i'm king despacito or what was that fucking song that yeah despacito king despacito Direct yeah, descendant of Spanish conquistadors. How? What are Puerto Rican? So Puerto... F- sorry for interrupting. No, no, go ahead, go on, go ahead, Monica. It's so funny how sometimes you get people like Jorge Ramos, who's obviously like whiter than ninety percent of white Americans, and is a direct descendant of people who colonized and raped everybody. Uh, when they arrive to America, is pretends to be an oppressed person of color, and it's just how the, the way race works in in North America is absolutely fascinating. Who is that it's, guy? It's, he's like a tell him. Who is he? Like is a he Mexican. Jorge Ramos. He's like a Mexican oh. reporter who like was complaining about Trump's racism. Oh yeah, uh, all those fucking he, people. Yeah. There's also like Jim Acosta, who's who does the same thing, right? Jim Acosta is yeah, supposedly yeah the CNN guy. I mean, there's a whole this and 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 the Brahmins do the same thing. It's like, like a, you just want to prove that you're not like the other ones. They're just cashing. It's like Matthew Hassan always complains about you know, being an oppressed person of color in England, and he is an Indian Muslim, basically an Indo-Turkic descendant of people who colonized India and created Mughal Empire. And I'm like, you have no right to complain about colonialism. He is Look such a piece of shit, Mehdi Hassan. He is. And the thing is, he also is a huge hypocrite because when he was, you know, in his Muslim phase, and he's Shiite, he used to call, uh, you know, non-believers, basically us, pigs, you know, complain about gay people. And now he's all like, I'm an oppressed person of color being persecuted in the United States, despite the fact that I'm being promoted by, by everybody, including Glenn Greenwald. And just, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Is Mehdi Hassan another Glenn Greenwald uh, discovery? I was just about to compare him to Pedro. Well, yes. I mean, oh Glenn no gosh. longer does the, the Muslim defense, but back in the day, Mehdi, it was a Sam Harris, uh, Glenn Greenwald kind of rivalry when, when Sam Harris was very anti-Islam for multitude multi- of reasons. 
And then Glenn Greenwald as a defender of free speech and somebody who, uh, you know, kind of after 9-11 decided that Muslims were being persecuted by the state, was defending them. Mehdi was one of the people that Glenn was promoting as, um, you know, like a sane, reasonable Muslim that people should should listen to. Some things never change. I was just about to say that Mehdi Hassan just reminds me of another, of like Pedro Gonzalez, who found his career on the left instead of the right. Uh, he, I believe I've saw evidence of him sending kiss-ass emails to conservative publications or media outlets like 10 years ago, trying to, you know, kissing their ass, trying to get published by them. I mean, these people are just like, just, the, there should be an opera about this level of hustler journo which race hustle rate or whatever yeah race hustle rapists um of the <laughs> journalistic class whose heads i wouldn't mind seeing on a silver platter although silver is a little too elegant for them and like just the crazy thing to me is that we've we're, we're living in a world that's so that has become so dominated by them when only 10 15, 12 years ago, it looked like journalism was going to be bankrupted, basically, because they couldn't figure out how to monetize as the internet was happening. And yeah. all of a sudden, not only they survived, much to our dismay, I mean, of course, the storyline, the narrative goes that they survived by becoming super evil, like the way we're talking about now. Uh, and there's probably a little element of truth to that. Like they did, circumstances did motivate them to become as cynical and as manipulative and as false um, as possible in order to cash in on the clickbait opportunities, basically, and algorithmically enrage their bases and all that. There's an element of truth to that, but they were always craving fucking idiots. I, 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 I hung around with them, I told you, in D.C. Uh, even ones that, that are, even ones that are um, conservative, oh, they're just... Like the like the like the, this fucking I don't even want to say his name because I'm sure there's mutual. There's this guy who wrote that sh that that shitty tweet about how he wants to see more and more Russians dead. His name is fucking Sunny Bunch. Like um, these people are just such fucking idiots. They're so pointless. They're so yeah. mid. They're so deeply spiritually mid. The one time that word should be a should be ruthlessly applied is to this entire class of people off with their heads i don't i was reading this book by janet malcolm um about Freud and just brilliantly written great writing and that level of journalism does not exist anymore somebody like that was writing for new york at that oh level. yeah no she's at a level that doesn't exist anymore for sure no 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 that that, that does not exist it's not. I, go yeah. ahead. No, go ahead. I would argue, like I said today earlier, earlier, I think liberals still hold some. Like it, everybody's mid on both sides. I think liberal writers at New Yorker, they're they're probably slightly better than what conservatives have to offer, and that's something that conservatives need to figure out instead of promoting people like Frederick Gonzalez or whatever. For affirmative action reasons, we need to have people who are good at writing, and we don't have that many. No, we don't. They don't. 
nobody does. It's a, it's always been a problem. I mean, it's a, that's a kind of its own conversation. I think the, 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 the real issue is that as I, it's one reason why I kind of completely fled, literally fled Washington DC. Um, and my aspirations of like writing at a high level, not politically, but also not afraid of politics, uh, in, in prose for magazines were just went up in smoke because yeah, I would get an occasional, you can get the occasional spot in the back of the book of a, of a, of a conservative journal, but no lib journal was like lib journals used to publish conservative writers, even as recently as the two thousands of zero zeros. But that kind of became by the time, by even by 2008, that became impossible um, and it came even more impossible a few years later. So without them looking for like a certain kind of lit- accepting a certain kind of literary talent from conservative with a conservative point of view, I mean, as I said, in the 2000s, the Atlantic Monthly was conservative, straight up. Their editor Salon published Steve Saylor, and I think it was 2000. Uh, so, so Salon used to publish. Found, uh, the founding columnists of Salon include Camille Paglia, as we all know, yeah. David Horowitz, my David Horowitz, <laughs> was one of them. Uh, just to cite two examples, like way, like uh, David Horowitz is 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 like not even David Horowitz. You can't even find front page mag his publication on Google. You can't if you Google it, it won't come up. They're so. Uh, they're so censored out. You have to actually manually type it into your URL to find it. Um, like it's it, we've yeah, it's a totally different world. But you know, Salon had others too. I think Glenn Greenwald got his started with Salon, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he used to he used to write. Not that, not that he's conservative, but he used to write against Iraq War. He had a blog actually before before he started writing for Salon. And he was pretty like reasonable on immigration issues and things like that. Then the rock war happened and switched to being more leftist yeah. on those issues. But he used to write for, for Salon. Uh, I believe Sailor was published in Atlantic as well. There was a debate on abortion that he had with someone that was published in Atlantic. So it was, yeah, conservatives write, conservative writers were not exiled to ghettos of like Bond's no. Review or whatever. They were able to be published. I mean, and William F. Buckley was, yeah, I mean, I, there are many other examples that go way back. And I mean, P.J. O'Rourke is one of the great conservative journalists and, and humorists, um, very big mm-hmm. influence on me in high school. And he was, of course, he got to start with Rolling Stone and with Harvard's uh, whatever the humor magazine was. And he worked for Rolling Stone for years and years. He was their reporter who did war war reporting in some of his most famous books, Holidays in Hell, Give War a Chance, or War Reportage. Um and other and and Parliament of Horrors is DC reportage, politics reportage, um, and he was a column. He became a columnist at the Atlantic Monthly in the two thousands. Uh, David Brooks was a columnist with for the Atlantic Monthly in the two thousands. Like es- not just columnist, but like he would write essays. Um, I mean, he's a liptard now by most by by uh, <laughs> ge- by the general standard, but he was conservative by the general standard at the time, Mark Stein, Mark Stein, who's as basically taboo as it gets now, because he was like a very early, his big, one of his big early things was demographics, immigration, cultural uh, assimilation problems. That was one of his, that was a big 
he was pursuing that from the very beginning, but he still had a monthly obituary column, very good column, in the Atlantic Monthly. He would write like he, had, he would like be a two it was like two pages, uh, uh, mm-hmm. obituary about some you know artist who died. Usually, some artist who died. He had a great one about Ray Charles once. I always looked forward to him. He's a great writer, Mark Stein is. He's very funny. Um, if you just go back and you know read him as a writer, very clever. Um, he had a column. Who else? I mean, there were others. Uh, Caitlin Flanagan, who I know she's like a Democrat, but she basically, her career was made in the Atlantic Monthly, writing anti-feminist, Polya-esque essays and stories. She still writes for the, I think she still writes for them from time to time. Um, the, the list goes on. And this was, what happened is like Michael Kelly, they also published, you know, standard issue uh, Democrat people a lot more than anything else but there there was a overall cultural openness to different points of view and to and if they were good writers and if you were clever there was a recognition of that there was a recognition of that talent and there was a clear like you know Ann Coulter wasn't going to get published because she was a straight up polemicist she wasn't uh she wasn't someone who was necessarily trying to understand something she was you know firing it down from the mount um, but if you were like a, if, if you were regarded as a good writer and there was such, there was such a standard, there was still a culture is the point, which does not exist anymore. There is no culture anymore. I mean, even the New Yorker is unreadable trash. Once in a while, they'll have something obviously. But every time I look in the, the New Yorker, like you, you're, you're opera, when you say lib, libs are still good, blah, blah, blah. That's like 10 years ago. It's not the case anymore. Like the New Yorker, I'm actually writing something about this, but they're, they're, you should see what they published about Bob Dylan's recent book. It's just like a woman, a woman complaining that it only it didn't have he didn't have enough women sing uh, women singers in his book of uh, celebrating like 66 songs that he didn't have enough women singers and then offering her own list instead. Like it's just the same trash every all around. There's no break except for occasionally there's a few legacy people who. Who have who are still writing like David Sedaris and you know whoever else? Um, it's really really bad. And Janet Malcolm is at a totally different level than any of these people. So is anyone? So is pretty much anyone of regard, anyone of note, whether you love him or hate him. William F. Buckley used to write for the Playboy magazine all the time. And so did other conservatives. Playboy um, published novels. Like it was, yeah, it was back in the day. It was different. But different also, times. wasn't Andrew Sullivan published? Bell Curve as a cover of New, New Republic. Republic. Yeah, he published um, he published the first the, the the first yeah huge excerpt from the Bell Curve as the cover story in New Republic. He also published Camille Paglia as a cover story in the New Republic mid nineties. Yeah, he and changed if- as well. I remember when Biden got elected, Andrew Sullivan wrote this tweet that made me cringe really hard about how he was walking his dog. And then when he saw that Biden got elected, he had tears streaming down his face because of how excited and how happy he was. And I'm like, you're the guy who were brave enough to publish bell curve on the cover of your magazine. And now you are this insufferable liptard. And hate Um, to say it, but also, you know, a kind of bafflingly, a stubbornly Catholic person who's disagreed with the Catholic church on everything, but insisted on being Catholic. And so there's that 
little item. Um, wasn't he a conservative who made the most compelling argument from the right in favor of gay marriage? Well, he was a gay marriage. I don't know how compelling his arguments were. He was obsessed with gay marriage. That was one of his big, yeah. I mean, to the degree that any gay, all, my, my old gay friends were sick and tired of hearing him go on about gay marriage. But he was, yeah. he wrote a book in the 90s called Virtually Normal. And I think that was his like literary argument for, I mean, his, that's the book that he wrote. And he, and he just hammered gay marriage on this blog. Yeah, he was a conservative. He was straight up a Reagan Thatcherite conservative with obviously, with the exception of socially on gay issues. Um, he was obviously, you know, pro-gay rights. And, and I know generally he was a very good writer too. I mean, I remember some of his essays uh, that would get published like in the New York Times uh, magazine. Uh, I re- there's one about hate, hate speech, hate, like he did, you know, anti-hate, sp- he was anti-hate speech laws. I'm sure he still is, but like he wrote a very yeah. long, very conscientious and sensitive essay about how just because people were doing something, you know, raunchy and provocative and making fun of gays doesn't mean that's hate speech. People have been, gays have been making fun of gays going all the way back. And he was quoting like Gertrude Stein. He was a, he was a, you know, I don't think he was ever a great stylist or anything, but he was definitely a thoughtful writer. And I think that two things broke Andrew Sullivan combined together. Um, One of them was the fact that was the blogosphere. I think the blogosphere was far more, people don't, you know, this is a kind of a hard case to make now because it seems so antiquated and it seemed at the time so liberating, the blogosphere. People suddenly had, people like Andrew Sullivan, people like Glenn, people like many, you know, so many, you could name it. Um, They had this, suddenly they were liberated to have no editor and they could just write whatever they wanted all day uh, and post it. And it was, it seemed like this huge, liberation from editors and from from um gatekeeping and all this and there were certainly people who became stars through the through their blogs that otherwise were not known really well i mean steve sailor was really the big i would i would say steve sailor was really one of the stars of the blogosphere world he's how he's it was through blogs that he became really part of the conversation through to the degree that he was i have a question do you think this is what's going to happen to Substack? Do you think it's going to go the same way that Blogosphere went? It's a Substack feels so different to me and so removed from, like, I don't even know what Substack is. And I'm not a big fan of Substack, as you know, we bitch about it all the time because it seems to attract us. But it's, yeah, I do think it has the same flaws. It's like, it it's sort of, but the thing is, it, it the Blogosphere had a certain proto-social media problem, which is that, you, you were addicted to, as a writer, uh, uh, you were addicted to, you know, shitting out as much stuff as possible, getting as much, generating as much excitement as possible. You weren't being very thoughtful necessarily. So somebody, now somebody, people I'm sure did, had great, I remember reading all kinds of blogs and really enjoying them. I was addicted to blogs. I was, I wasted way too much of my life in my 20s reading fucking blogs all day. It was like my social media addiction is now. Except now I have friends on social media and I have, I am expressing myself and it's far more actually rewarding, even if it's more universe, even if it's more consuming than blogosphere. But blogosphere, I saw Andrew Sullivan go from being a good writer to a bad writer. And the reason was his blog. Like that's what turned him into a shit writer. Um, 
And then the second reason was Barack Obama. He became an Obama boy. And that ruined him. Like that turned him was into Was it gay marriage a, that made him an Obama boy? Probably the Bain factor. And it was also, you know, McCain. He hated McPalin and McCain and whatever. He was all, he was swept up more than anything. First of all, Obama was anti-gay marriage in the beginning, remember? When he ran in yeah. 2008. So he was yeah. still supported him. He still supported him because he was black, basically. And because he was swept up in the idea of, you know, achieving this final form of racial harmony in America. Um, he was swept up like many people were swept up. Many conservatives were swept up with that idea. I alone in the entire United States of America voted for John McCain. <laughs> I like think of the, and I hate John McCain. I just knew that this thing was going to fucking was not going to be it. I knew they that They couldn't have predicted that Obama would usher in racial apocalypse. They couldn't have but but if you understood the way Obamaites like if you understood the way the Democrat uh ideology and just general spiritual machinery operates. I mean, I, I didn't think I no, I, I wouldn't say that I thought that he was going to be the Antichrist uh, the way he has apparently turned out to be. I didn't like there was nothing that dramatic. I just I just did not see anything to him beyond a more palatable version of the same old like Democrat uh, identity grifting. He just made it seem cool he made it, he, he would, what he did was he, he uh, threw a few bones to the, to the conservative side. You know, he would quote Ronald Reagan when he'd go on Fox News and quote Ronald Reagan. And everyone would go, oh, he quoted Ronald Reagan. Whoa, he's so, he, oh, he's such a leader. Oh, he's so eloquent. Uh, the, thing that th the thing that most spooked me about him is the way everyone pretended that he was this master orator which he was not like he was the most boring. He's one of the most boring speakers who has ever held the office of the presidency. I mean, I'm not She's old so enough. He's so contained and he, you know, never crosses any lines. He's not interesting to watch, but also like the thing that made me hate Obama the most is not how boring and mediocre he was, but the way how cynically he was willing to use race to score some points with uh, other race grifters is him like basically finding excuses for Jeremiah Wright and then throwing his own white grandmother under the bus, the same grandmother that raised him and gave him safe middle-class childhood. And then praising the grandmother he basically met twice, the, one, the African one just because it was the right thing to do. And I'm like, somebody who uses race so cynically and kind of throws his own family members under the bus to score certain points is someone I would never want to have as a leader, as, a, as my president. As somebody, it's somebody that, that cannot be trusted with power in general. Exactly. And, and all you have to do is see him do that once which he did in 2008. Like he was, he did he didn't do that later. He did that in the beginning, you know, during his, the honeymoon phase. Because he was yeah. he was supposed to be convincing black people that he's really black, which is another thing that's fake about him. Like he was he was not an American black. He was not like a an African American uh uh classic black. He's totally different from that. 
And so there had to be, there was a period of suspicion about him among black Americans. I remember that very well because I was, you know, like black comedians would talk about it all the time. But he obviously, yeah. as always, no matter how much there, no matter how much the black population is suspicious of any Democrat running for president, inevitably something will happen that gets them all on board, be it whatever, you know, Obama's witchcraft was, be it George Floyd, be it whatever they're going to do between now and 2024. Um, it always something had the, 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 the dust settled, the, the a sprinkling of fairy dust and they're all, they're going to vote 90%. Hillary um, said she carries hot sauce in her back and she's still bound around 90% of the black vote. It's just, Democrats have that locked in and it's really admirable how loyal the African-American population is to the Democratic Party. And, um, I don't know, it's, I don't know if it's because they're getting what they want and they're, they're loyal clients because they're getting what they want from Democratic Party, or is it some other reason? But somebody should look at that model and try to emulate that for conservatives, because I don't know if such level of loyalty is achievable from any other demographic. It's not achievable from any other demographic, which is exactly why it's so problematic. It's like, why, why, why? Loyalty is a good thing, generally, but now it's become... Politically, great. Yeah, I mean, but it, but it's but it's become uh, it's it's cult like, and it's just simply it, it's not it's not a good thing. It's not the best thing for certainly it's not the best thing for Black Americans because they're not they have there's no reason to compete for their vote when it's going to not go completely one way. Like you have to you have to take a page out of certain other ethnicities who shall not be named who are capable of playing both sides against each other um, and getting more of what they want from each side. The black pop, the you mean black Latinos? Vote. Yeah, Latin, you know that. Yeah, exactly. Latinos, you know, that's what I'm talking about. They're <laughs> everywhere. They control the yeah. media. The Puerto Ricans <laughs> specifically. The Puerto Ricans specifically. Where is media. Veronica? How did where? Despacito, where is Veronica? How did Despacito become such a popular song? You think that was organic? It's because it's lowering so. everyone's IQ. <laughs> I think honestly, I think a lot of that music, the beat, like lowers your brain capacity. Like if you listen to it, um, it certainly lowers mine. You become like the more you want to listen to it. Are they really doing that down in the like? Do they? Despacito is all about how people just go down and like down to the plot to the piat to the square and like everyone's having a good time. I, maybe is, they do. I just when I'm when I'm in Puerto Rico, I'm having a bad time, so I'm like not <laughs> out there. You know. <laughs> I know of a friend who moved to Puerto Rico, if you can believe it, in order to avoid taxes. Yeah, people do that a lot. Does he like it? Is it? Worth I guess, it? but he. Def- I know it's a weird. He, you know, he's like he made a bunch of money in crypto, so that's like you know they're all kind of crypto types who do that. So like his life is pretty set. His life is pretty much lived out between the gym and his apartment and you know having money in there makes you i guess it's easier to have it's like it, i don't know it doesn't it never quite makes sense to me like i hear that and i i just don't quite get it i've never been there if but you're okay with like living in a shithole country like sure but there's better shitholes to live in that's my i think what are the better shitholes to live in huh yeah, what's what a shithole you shit would hole? recommend? What shitholes? I don't know, because like my issue with Puerto Rico, besides the fact that I hate Puerto Rican culture, is that, for example, like the infrastructure doesn't work. I remember growing up there every week, consistently, there would be a blackout. Um, 
constantly. The water would just shut off. You have to have water tanks. You have to have um, like uh, like electric plants. Is that what they're called? Like generators. You have to have a generator. Otherwise, you will inevitably be left like without light or water. Like it's just a place that doesn't work. There'll be flooding. That's a problem if there's all that fuckery going on. Which is why it gets like fucked every time there's a hurricane. Right. And then they blame the Republicans for like not sending something. Remember that thing happened? Yeah. That like woman. Remember there was some woman? (laughs) And all the aid was stolen, right? That's what always happens. It's like the same people who are complaining about like we don't have enough aid are the ones who like take it. So, yeah, I really don't care. It can sink into the ocean. We need to do like a top ten shithole countries. Well, it's basically wherever like Big Bap and Bren Braddock are going all the time. Like top ten El Salvador to move to. Yeah, where the rent boys are the cheapest. (laughs) The cheapest and the most peated. The most peated rent boys. Yeah. I guess we're trying to make that happen in El Salvador. It wouldn't work in Puerto Rico. Everyone there, there are no poofas in those bad boys. Puerto Ricans <laughs> be full of poofas. Do they I guess it that guy's doing something, right? He just put the entire country in jail and suddenly things are working in Salvador. Like Oh, that's the country that was putting all those guys in jail? Yeah, yeah. He cool. like put 10 and 20 percent of the population in jail and their murder rate went down 90 percent crazy how that yeah the murder rate went down 90 percent and the new york times had an op-ed calling him a basically a fascist and complaining about human rights violations and i'm like what about rights of those normal people who just want to go to work and get fucking harassed by ms-13 gang members they live under threat of violence all the time. What about their rights? Why do I have to care about human rights of, of violent murderers who don't hesitate to burn people alive, to kill children, and do violent, horrible shit? And it just, you know, it's it was so... It, like, I expected that, but not to that level. And it was just insane to read that in the Yeah, It's something like his approval rating is like 95% right now. That too? Am I, am yes. I don't, yes. We're way up there, right? Yeah, because normal people don't... Normal people like not getting raped and murdered. Yeah. I mean, everybody does like to not get raped and murdered. But it's just... It's, it's crazy how mainstream media never sides with normal people who actually contribute to society and need normal lives. It's always the right of some 65 IQ violent murderer who just raped a grandmother and went to jail. And we, ha- we have to care about why he doesn't deserve uh, you know, a death penalty or whatever. It's never what happened to, those, to that poor grandmother who was raped by this violent yeah, I mean, and well, because it's easier to write substacks about, you know, crime, about about the carceral state um, and yeah. all that sort of shit. It's just easier to write substacks about that stuff, which is why I'm, which is like, I mean, that's like, that's just, that's always going to be the case. It's always going to be, people are always going to be motivated by white knighting for criminals and i mean i get it i'm sympathetic to the general civil to the civil liberties um you know 
point of view, like I don't want, I don't want the government to make things illegal that shouldn't be illegal. But when it comes to things that are illegal and whether they should be punished severely, it's like what well, we have so many, so many test cases already, or so many, so many periods of history that attest to whether it you have being like you can get away with a little. What happens is inevitably crime goes completely fucking out of hand for a, 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 a number of reasons. And then the only way to stop it is to crack down severely. And then when you crack down severely, you get a bunch of people bitching about Rudolph Giuliani. Those people then motivate a laxing of the standards, which because things have been cracked down and because like, let's say the economy is doing well and whatever, you don't necessarily see an uptick for several years. Like New York, after they scaled back the Giuliani, uh, they, they loosened things up. It didn't just skyrocket immediately. But wait a few years, wait for some other bad shit to happen surrounding it, like the complete destruction of our civilization. And now it's like going crazy bonkers again. And L.A. is just a fucking like LA, it's not going to change until it gets so bad that people are like screaming in the streets all the time. It's going to get worse and worse and worse until people are finally, just finally have to accept that you need to fucking clean this shit up completely. But, you know, I was discussing that with a friend yesterday that there was probably more sanity in the West Coast compared to the East Coast because Caruso was still getting a lot of influential celebrities to vote for him. And there was a huge chunk of like wealthy educated people who went to Caruso in New York. It doesn't happen. If you look at the mayoral election, basically what happened was there was this black woman who was extremely progressive and wanted, wanted to let all the prisoners out. She got pretty much everybody on, on upper East and upper West side, every educated white person. And then Eric Adams, who was like the most pro police democratic candidate got all the black and Hispanic vote. It's completely reversed in LA. And I think there's some sanity among white Democrats in in the West Coast that does not exist in the East Coast anymore. But Eric Adams won. And Caruso Because of black people. Well, good for them. At least I get I guess they have more yeah, it's opposite here because uh um although there is always a segment of these fucking you know, in LA there's these it's like these fucking actors. It's the it's fucking um, these transients who go to improv class and live here for two years and they all vote for the social democrat like Soros people when if, to the extent that they do vote they get all excited about it too they start you know they start spreading their instagraphics and I mean I was like I thought that Caruso was going to win because yeah it used to be it used to be that, that like you know it used to be that California was very conservative overall and would especially get conservative when push came to shove. Like, that's why nine months after he was elected, get re-elected, Gray Davis got recalled. And it was all driven by talk radio, specifically John and Ken in LA, 640, KFI 640, longtime traffic hour guys. Like, it was a, like, this was like right in the peak of my early political awareness. This was like 2002, three, whatever, while I'm in high school. Uh, he got recalled, and that's when Schwarzenegger won. Um, of course, California has always had these initiatives that are sometimes very conservative, such as the one that banned affirmative action in '96. That was that was uh, pushed by Ward Connolly. But all that seems to become seems to have become so 
just just weakened over time to the point where even as the entire city is just awash in filth and in maniacs, crazy, just people who are not, they're not homeless. They're just completely, they're crazy and they're dangerous to everyone, including themselves. And they're polluting the streets constantly. And it's a, and it's just a nightmare. And like they couldn't elect Caruso. It was crazy to me that Karen Bass won. And now she's not going to do anything. Um, she's a social Democrat type. It's like, it's like, it makes you feel that I, I'm starting to feel like it's going to get, it has to literally hit rock bottom. Uh, not literally, but you know what I mean? For, for, for there it's to like be. You have to get your own central park five before, before you get somebody who's going to clean up the streets. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to be like, it's going to be like maybe, you know, I don't know. It has to also affect the rich people to a, to a very personal degree. Um, it has to be like five rich black kids who get like LeBron James's family or something, you know, it's like, it's going to have to be to that degree to where there's no yeah. room for a fucking Karen Bass to wiggle in through the uh, UCB vote and the, and the inner city caravan vote. Um, Scary or stuff. as I know, I know. But California does produce some of the best conservatives, I feel like, because if you're a conservative in Texas, basically there's not much room for being a rebel, for being an independent thinker. You're just doing what everybody else does. If you're a conservative in California, however, you know, you have to be an independent thinker. You have to be somebody who kind of notices the trends, develops his own, forms his own ideas. Like somebody like Stephen Miller, Stephen Miller, uh, Steve Saylor, Drudge, like all of those people are from California. And I think there's a reason why they come from there, not from places like Texas. Breitbart. Uh, Breitbart. Cernovich, uh, uh Amanda Milius, uh, many, many others. There's a long list um, of Cal... And David Horowitz kind of... He didn't come from here originally, but this is where he he established his. He this is where he was converted. Um, there are far more interesting than East Coast uh, conservatives or anybody who comes from like more conservative states to begin with. I just yeah, I just it makes total sense. Uh, it's a this is something that I explored a lot with when in in Amanda's episode, like the the something that we'll get into also in the live event in Los Angeles, there's a, I mean, you know, Didion's conservatism as well. It's very yeah. California. Very Babbitt's California. became conservative by then. Very conservative. Um, there's more than that, even that, that I'm not even like that I'm blanking on. There's a long list of people of California create and Stephen Miller. I knew very well in college. Uh, he was kind of basically part of that same, the same kind of, um, I would say, you know, political uh, uh, education that that I had. Ben Shapiro, if you if you're if we're counting, is also a Delhi conservative. Um, it's a not different, my favorite. not my favorite either. I've been fantasizing <laughs> about strangling him since he was sixteen. Um, but I you were going to say having sex with him? No, that, that no, even to, no. It was a purely, a, it was purely like, you know, stuffing him in the locker room nerd situation. Not into Jewish guys, huh? I, I could see my way into, into a Jewish guy. We'll have to see. <laughs> we'll have to see if Ted, 
we'll have to see what Ted does to seduce me. In, uh, in, in I would not think he would be your type. No, he's not, but he's very cute, uh, nevertheless. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? if he That doesn't mean you have the same type as, like, swarthy, like, people from mountains. Not swarthy. Like you, like them, you don't like them swarthy. No, we like, are swarthy. Yeah. yeah, we're swarthy. Yeah, yeah, we like opposite types. Yeah, we're very similar. Um, we're very similar, you know. You're, but you're also, you know, you're not a gay man. You're a woman. We talk, we joke sometimes about how you're a gay man, whatever, but you're, you are still a woman. I mean, you're a gay man in the sense that you desire to be a, a pain in the ass of those you love, but you're not, <laughs> you're still ultimately a woman. You ultimately have love. To, yeah, you have to fall, you have to be in love and you're ultimately, I mean, yeah. th there's more, th well, we'll, we're going to have to uncover this a little bit when you come to LA. And I, I just my my physical attraction works the same way that I think women are not visual per se, right? Like women are attracted to Ginsburg, right? And he's not the most attractive guy in the world. He's actually objectively ugly, but there's something more than they see. That's not how gay men work. It's usually very physical. And I think I am very physical in that way as well. I think appearance matters to me more than to an average straight woman it would. I do like very attractive men. So in that way, maybe I'm gay, but I also fall in love deeply and profoundly. And I want to be possessed by a man. So. I guess yeah. Which is not, that's that. not ungay necessarily, but the, but the part where you, the part, the question with the part with you, with you is you're like, you need, you have, there's something else. It's not just physical. It's, it's like you're into mission. Like on top of everything else, you need them to be Vikings who are, you know, 6'3 and above, and also half Jewish from the father's side. <laughs> like, we're, like, you have weird, you have to, they also have to be capable of holding their own in a conversation about race science. Like, there's a lot of things, a lot of factors. Yeah, that, yeah, very true. <laughs> to unlocking your heart. And they're not. Veronica, what do you like? <laughs> yeah, what do you like, Veronica? I mean, me to ask you this. Um, I don't know. No, oh, come on. You don't know. You've got to have. I don't, I don't know. I, that's not something I like. Um, what's that like porn ruling that they had one time? It's like, I know it when I see it. Yeah. You know it when you see it. Well, what have you seen and known in the past? I mean, have you, can you describe like one of your. I cannot. No, I, I don't. I, for some reason, I think it's, um, I don't talk about that stuff. Oh, cool. That's okay. Just keep it locked down, like deep in a cellar. I never acknowledge it. Do you not? Do you acknowledge it to yourself at least? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I have problem acknowledging things, so I understand. Yeah, I don't but... know. It's not something I like really think about a lot of the time, honestly. Most of my time is spent like um, thinking about like whatever Mozart I'm listening to. I'm not like considering men. How, how well, when's the last time you've been you've dated somebody? Never, never. Wow, yeah, you're really putting me on the spot. No, I'm just curious because we're talking about Salome, yeah. No, um, never. Is it 
is there a, do you feel a connection to Salome in a sense, like through like in I the sense that like when I was like growing up, I did. Cause, um, you know, you feel like a connection, like she was one of those, I mean, as when you're a teen, you like really like glom onto things. Um, I was never like, a like an emo band and person or anything. I was just listening to early Strauss and like, um, Wagner like I was also really into the Flying Dutchman um another like loveless incel um work that the right wing doesn't talk about because most of them don't know anything about right they don't know shit yeah so no Salome was like my femcel um you know it's like you get um you don't want anything and then you really want something and then eventually it turns out you can't have it in a certain sense Although the, I do think she gets it at the end, because um, to love is to die, essentially. Yeah, she gets his head, and she gets to kiss his severed head. How hot it's is like that? It's pretty cool. It's pretty sick. But then, it's and her not. lips are smeared with his blood. It is pretty metal. Like it, it is like a metal ending. But then, what's the quote of like, um, "Do I taste blood or is it love?" But then it's like, oh, they that. That, yeah, they say that the taste of love is bitter, but what of it? Um, which is, I think, is a, you know, the mis- what's the other one? The mystery of love is greater than the mystery of death is another quote that, like, always stuck with me. Yeah. They're yeah, similar, like, though. They're very like similar. The, the ultimate desire is to be annihilated, I think. Right. Well, it's yeah. certainly the, that's certainly the, um, I think, you know, the, Minu the minutiae the if you were to get into if you were to really like un, un, unpack what the sex uh, desire is it is a it is a desire for you know to experience death then to come you know then to wake up and not not completely be over but like it is a in in the 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 moment you're building up to in the sex act is the one in which you are now it's certainly annihilated if you're from the female point of view as far as I'm able to understand. Yeah, no, and that's that what women are love choking, love beating, being choked during sex. Choked, yeah. slapped, all the other stuff, everything. It's all in this part when of the When you're same choked, thing. you kind of to the point of like not being able to. Right. You, you basically can't, you, can't breathe and you kind of lose consciousness for a second. That's, I think, like a lot of women into that are for similar reasons. I do not see it as desire again with Salome. I refuse. I didn't see opera, so I'm just basing it on the play that I read. And then you will be convinced. In the opera, it's clearly there is clear. There's definitely a desire. There's definitely desire. She's very cold and calculated in the play. She uses her feminine charms in a very calculated way. She doesn't seem like somebody who is just a person who gets possessed, like you know, who gets. well, I think in the opera, like you really sense the possession of desire, like through the whole dissolution of the final monologue of, you know, this like monologue onto death, which becomes this, um, it is kind of like the transcendent moment, you know, it's like, a that's the moment you're really waiting for when you watch this thing is for, you watch the soprano go crazy and then she dies, which also it's like a brutal role. By the end, you're essentially like, you know, it's like the the sacrificial dance of the rite of spring. Like you're just really waiting for somebody to go for it. Um, 
And then in that moment is like an audience you're kind of in on it too. It becomes this like um, communal sacrament almost. Just what's beautiful about opera because it's kind of a, I keep saying kind of, sorry. Um, but it is a, it's a communal thing. Like everyone's experiencing the same emotion at the same time. And therefore um, you feel it much more deeply. And that's like really united people like uh, RBJ and uh, Scalia. No. Yeah. RBG. They both. Yeah. RBG. Uh, yeah, it does RPG. have. <laughs> It does do that. But again, I didn't see the author and the play. She's clearly just a narcissist. It seems to me like in the opera, you could make a case if I were writing a school paper, which is always an exciting way of thinking about it, that, (laughs) that it's only after she holds his severed head that she actually falls in love with him. Like, it's ven- it's pure vicious it's pure you know narcissistic rage it's pure jealousy it's pure everything before that but then when she holds him in his head and when she says if you if you looked at me you would have loved me right was that the line again there's, there's a lot of line, line. <laughs> <laughs> what was it when it's she like, says you would have loved me is that yeah. there's yeah, she's singing to the head at that moment. I think she falls in love with only after the head is severed and in her hands. And she makes out with him. The question is, it's like, is desire love necessarily? Well, you know, I think desire... desire no, it's not. You know, I do think at the... I like to think that at the end there is a certain, like, um, perverse love happening when, when she dies. But, like she doesn't necessarily have to love him. She just desires, like that is the, just the nature of the devouring desire. Um, you know, it, it just tramples everything in the way. I'll make love to your corpse. Basically. Yeah. You, it's, I mean, yeah, this place got necrophilia, yeah. incest, murder, anti-Semitism. There is a lot of, Lots of that. A lot of complaining yeah. about the Jews who are constantly bickering over their stupid laws. So true. Yeah. <laughs> the la- the um, rabbis are very funny in this production. The rabbis are like, what? He's no Messiah. When they talk about um, something horrible might happen, they don't mean the murder. They mean the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, <laughs> uh, they mean... Uh, they mean Israel. Talmudic arguments. Yeah, she's really kind of like you. Oh she's God, really- yes, yes, I'm totally fed up with Talmudic arguments. Me and Salome both. You and Salome both are are have had it up to here. That's what starts. Yeah. That's what causes this whole problem is that the Jews wouldn't stop arguing, so she barges out. Again, she tried to sedate them with their with her beauty. Uh, she tried to sedate them. It didn't work. Did not work at all. In fact, there's a what lot of... What is she supposed to be ethnically? She's a Judean princess. <laughs> Whatever Judea is. Judeo-Christian princess. <laughs> She's not Judea. Roman because in the play, they, com- they complain about Romans, they complain about the Greeks, they complain about the Jews. 
Syrians. She's something else. I'm just curious what she would be. Levantine? I don't know. Palestine? She's finished in the production at the Mets. So. She's whatever Hanania is. She's, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think they're the same. Um, Oscar Wilde. Um, did, did you, have you seen the movie Wilde? I actually saw it this weekend. And I no, I haven't seen it. I haven't. Was it good? Yeah, I was trying to watch some documentaries on him and then somebody recommended the movie. And I obviously love Jude Law and I think he's probably one of the best looking men that ever lived and shockingly a good actor as well. Uh, and, I, and I really enjoyed it. It had a very sympathetic perspective to his wife and it actually showed her from a very positive light. Even when he gets arrested, she refuses to get a divorce from him. And she tells him that I don't know if it's true, if it's really what happened. But in the movie, she's a very sympathetic character. She, she says, I, yeah, go ahead. And she says, I'll let you see your sons, but she dies before he gets out. Oh, that's fake. Uh, so, so yeah, um, that's that, the, the dying before he gets out is fake. Um, she died after he got out. But, you know, that's movies do this all the time. They just make shit up. But uh, they, they do, you know, they tie things chronologically differently so that it's dramatically potent because no one's going to know the difference. But she was a great, actually, she was saintly to me. I mean, I, I, I reading the biography, the most recent biography, very long, um, she definitely, you know, given all the humiliations and all of the, given everything, she was very, she was definitely a saint, I say. At the end, she did forbid him from seeing the kids because he wouldn't stop seeing fucking Posey. Um, he, like, she, she was very kind, very forgiving overall. Uh, she didn't demand, like, you know, that he, that, like, she, she, the, the one demand I think ultimately was for him never to see Bozy again, and mm -hmm. to you know he foolishly did because he was in love with Bozy. That's the problem. That's he was also. It's a bit tragic because after jail, he didn't have much of a choice in the sense that nobody would hang out. Like he had some of his friends were hanging out with him still. Like you know Robbie Ross was Reggie Turner. Robbie Ross they were very loyal to him. They were the best. Also, very sympathetic character in the movie. Yeah, they're the they're the they're the angels. Bozy's the demon. He cannot stop. I mean, Bozy makes his way down to Naples and they hang out. He just refuses to he, he Wild refuses to like accept that demand that he cannot see Bozy. Even though he should have accepted his own demand not to see Bozy that he himself knew he shouldn't have should not have done. But again, how can you blame him when he's basically a complete and fucking pariah? And one of the few people left you can he can talk to is is Bozy, um, and so that's ultimately she prevented him, and then she died, and then she died. I mean, it's not you know she died a little bit after he was out of jail. Um, yeah. She, Did she, she kept base Dorian Gray and Bozy? Was it who Dorian Gray was based on? Mm, no. Well, I'm I'm a little I've I've now forgotten the exact chronology. It's kind of like, you know, it's crazy. I think that Bozy, um, don't hold me to this, but I think he wrote Dorian Gray, like, before he started 
doing gay shit, if you can believe it. That really? book, yeah, like it it actually, I mean, he had the internal, he had the, the desires, but I think the actual, uh, his actual thing started after Dorian Gray was published. So he kind of Oops. predicted his own demise. Um, so I don't think Bozy, I don't think that, that, um, because also he's not like, he, Bo- Bozy was not, he, he, I don't know. I don't think Bozy's the, the model, the model for Dorian Gray, even if you were to, you know, just speculate without knowing the, the facts. Um, there's others who might fit that. There's others, but Bozy's too much of a, Bozy was always a schemer. Bozy was never this innocent, you know, the thing about Dorian Gray is, have you read Dorian Gray? Yeah. Yeah. It's like Dorian Gray starts out innocently and he is this, you know, just like this, this gorgeous angel of innocence and, uh, Lord Henry is the one who corrupts him. And, and if anyone like, if anyone's like Bozy in the book, it would be Lord Henry, um, actually. But not, but even that's too flattering to Bozy. Um, so in a very strange way, this book kind of cast its own spell on on Oscar. Uh, it, it happened before all of his shit went down. He was very buttoned down. I don't know what the movie shows, but he was yeah. very buttoned down about his homosexuality. Like you know, he had three kids. He had he he felt like there was no way it was it would have been. He knew how destructive it would have been. And it wasn't until he started to get a taste of it and he got truly felt liberated by it. He truly felt like this is, this is, this is life. Um, he did love her. He did love his wife in a certain way. Um, that's where we can say desire separated by passion, uh, you know, desire separate from love. He did love her. And then in the movie, he gets seduced by Robbie and this beautiful monologue that Robbie gives him about the Greek love, you know, an older man teaching a younger man about how to live and, you know, discussing philosophy and kind of guiding them to life. And then he brings up the fact that in ancient Greece, they would have statues of Apollo and like um, in Bright's room because they thought that if she was pregnant and she would look at the statue, she would give birth to a beautiful child. And he's like, but in your case, I see those statues in your bedroom. And kind of leads with, and he seduces them. And then he actually, by the end of the movie, he talks to his wife and he says, I'm sorry for leading him down this path. He would have never gone to jail if I didn't seduce him. But um, yeah, the reason why I ask is because they picked somebody as beautiful as Jude Law to play Rosie. And I was like, maybe they based during no, that. No, yeah, it's good. No, but to Bozy, I mean, if you look at Bozy, Actually, Jude Law is a good casting for Bozy because Bozy, when he was young, had that kind of impish. Jude Law has a certain devilish thing to. I've seen him up. I mean, I've, I've, literally bumped into him because we were both at a play in London. Um, mm-hmm. Girl from the North Country, which is like a Bob Dylan musical type of play, and I saw him in, in intermission. He was in the bar at the bar, and I got a drink, and I saw him. And he's like, you know, a person. He's just as charming, and charismatic. He's not that. He's not a very tall man, so he. Everyone kind of looks different in person. Um, yeah. But he's you know radiant. Um, he has a he. I could see why they cast. If you look at the pictures of Lord Alfred Douglas, aka Bosey, 
you can see a certain you can see why the energy might might match that's sort of like uh uh he's not like he's not like a you know jude law is not aloof he's not he doesn't have that aloof sort of beauty that say dorian gray has in in every version of him um who would you say would be a perfect dorian gray if you had to pick one actor alive today it could be anybody it could be anybody ever (sighs) well let's just stick with let's just stick with what's near at hand this is not true but maybe jacob elordi you know if you if you do his hair right because jacob elordi has an innocence to him but I don't um, know if J- I would always see Dorian Gray as blonde. I don't know. I just have like this vision of him as like he hasn't been blonde in any of the movies. Like he's always been dark haired in the at least in most of the movies. The, the ones I'm aware of, he's been like kind of a dark haired beauty um, in the portraits and stuff, and in the movies. The one in the movie, the 1945 movie, is pretty good. Now he's not, you know, he's not like my type, but you can see his. You can see why it works. Like he's, um, if you, it's a good one. The one with George Sanders as Lord Henry, and and with uh, Angela Lansbury as Sybil. Um, I've seen the one, the new one with Ben Barnes, and I also seen the show called. Um, it's the one with Eva Green, where they have various like Victorian uh, characters, um, and. It's also played by a brunette, but I always imagine him as a uh, golden haired blonde with an innocent face. It could be played by um, somebody like, I don't know, Veronica, who do you think should play Dorian Gray? I'll be honest, I haven't read Dorian Gray since I was in middle school, so I have barely any recollection. I, 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 I tend to be, I tend towards someone with dark, kind of dark hair, green eyes, or, or like some, someone that is not, I mean, if, yeah, I was just thinking like with Timothy Chalamet, no, because Chalamet is too, Chalamet is too transparent. It has to be someone who's kind of like, Honestly, I know someone in real life who 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 would fit the bill. I won't mention any names. <laughs> I won't mention any. I don't Is that know. somebody that I met? Uh, yeah, it's someone that you've met. It's somebody you brought to my birthday. Don't. <laughs> don't. No, no. <laughs> He's blushing. No. Um, yeah, I guess it's my personal preference for blonde men that makes me think that Dorian Gray should be blonde. Yeah, it's your. It's um, we're all projecting our. We're all projecting our fantasies. I just yeah, you could see. I could see a blonde man being that type. I could totally see a blonde. You know, a nice. Uh, 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 yeah, I could I see a blonde. Timothy Chalamet was perfect. The way you he's an image of eternal youth. He's somebody who comes the closest for me personally to the boy and. Uh, death and Venice in terms of youthfulness and this image of perfect youth that like an aging artist would um, see before he dies like this is the phase I can see um, 
somebody like idealizing the way it was in Death in Venice. So if I had to pick, it probably would be the boy from Death in Venice or Tim I haven't, Shaw. Can, believe it or not, I haven't seen Death in Venice, but I have felt it. I have felt it. Every time I go in Europe, I'm just, I feel like that Death in Venice meme. I just feel like that. I took, I took somebody with me to watch Death in Venice. And we were actually, I've seen it when I was a teenager uh, because I really like Italian cinema. So I really loved the movie and we all went to see it recently on a big screen. Half of the theater was laughing because there's image, there's basically a moment where this composer, um, this artist, he's so desperate to, to be seen by this boy and he's so desperate to become young again that he puts makeup on his face and just melts away in the heat of Venice and the entire theater starts laughing and I'm just sitting there and I'm like, what am I doing here? Why am I among this morons who can't see the beauty in this? And yeah. But you would love that movie. It is I'm sure I would. It, it was the way we were discussing gay love as it is portrayed by Tennessee Williams, where it's always about age. It's always about kind of like losing youth and access to young bodies. Um it's kind of similar here too. And Thomas and was Mann he, was mm-hmm. was he gay? I mean, he sounds like it's unclear. It's unclear. One of his children accused him of doing something to them. Then there are other people who said that he's never acted upon his desire, but he would fall in love with young men. Well, like he would fall in love with college students and stuff, but he never yeah. acted upon it. So it, it's very unclear. Yeah, I mean, let him, let him who hasn't, yada, yada. But yeah, I, I totally get the, you know, the other thing, the other th- issue with it being gay is that, um, which I think factors into all this, we talked about this one, t- one time, I think, um, is that so many people who are gay, when they, when they kind of in a Dorian Gray way, they, they don't only lose their innocence, they lose their masculinity. They lose their... Mm-hmm they become, you know, gay face and they become gay voice. Um, and that's just like, it's just like, it's so, it's like, oh. because, you know, you're into, you grow up and your idea of men is men. And then Paul Newman. You, huh? Yeah. Paul Newman. Right. Yeah, exactly. Paul Newman. To a lesser extent, Marlon Brando. <laughs> you have an idea that men are men. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, you're not attracted to like fruitcakes when you're when you're young, um, but but you know, yeah, but there but life has a way of uh, kind of fruitcaking people. So that's always. Uh, do you do you find yourself ever attracted to like the scheming bottom guys with like feminine boys and? Uh, with a not so much. I I had a, there was a certain. There's a there's a certain strain of that scheming bottom that I feel like f- fem, that I feel like at some point in my rather confused pinball machine erotic journeys I have been you know kind of entranced by to a to a degree in a kind of weird perverted way but oh yeah. but but in recent years as I've sta- as I've stabilized and as I've like as I've like found my footing and like in what kind and like what, I, you know, and just become more comfortable generally 
with this um, deviant way of life. I, 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 they've lost, they've lost their hold on me. When I get a, a whiff of scheming bottom from someone, and it's not paired with, or it's not mixed with all kinds of other whiffs, you know, if there is talent, for example, yeah. that can disguise the stench of a scheming bottom. If there's like yeah. a lot of talent that comes with it. But when there's not much talent and it's a lot just a bunch of scheming without the talent and it's a lot of bottoming yeah. and a lot of scheming, yeah, I'm like, I'm over it. Like, I'm like, next. Yeah. You know. And it also feels yeah. good to punish them by not being interested or at all. You know what I mean? I like to do the, <laughs> jo- I do the John the Baptist thing. I'm just like, no, I will not look at you. You're a Babylonian hole. You're a mindless hole. <laughs> what if they demand you head on a silver platter? Let them dig. They, they probably will one day. <laughs> and let's hope. Let's hope that black man with the sword who ends up doing it. Let us hope that he remembers all that I have done for his people. All that I have done for his kind and for his for my fellow brethren. All I have done for them. I, let's hope he remembers and spares me. Uh, that beheading. You will. Uh, I have to bow out. I have work tomorrow. But we've had a wonderful chat. We did. I will... it's great. Sorry for not watching the opera. I, I completely. I was not able to express my thoughts on the opera because I haven't seen it, and I'm not as well versed in operas as Veronica, who is amazing and brilliant. I am really impressed at how much Veronica knows about opera and classical music going all the way back to teenage years. Um, I'm kind of brain dead. Usually I'm running on a higher uh, gear. I'm just brain dead right now. Um, But it's, I mean, I didn't watch the Oscar Wilde biography, so we're even. (laughs) No, it's I mean, we got a lot. I think we covered us from from all the angles. You know, Monica said she was, she had brain fog and she was going to nap, but instead she argued with Jews in our group chat. Instead of napping, <laughs> we're also fucking addicted. Ted is still sick. coming at me. I, I can't even respond to him. He's been attacking me for two hours while we had this podcast. And I have to, before I go to sleep, I have to shiksa destroy him. Again, as shiksa is always do. Exactly like the beginning of Salome being attacked by a Jew for, for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Well, these Jews are all going to be present at Filthy Ar- that at, at uh, Filthy Armenian Adventures presents Los Angeles: A Reverie Under the Stars on September 23. So, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to catch Salome too, uh, come uh, send an email to filthyarmeniantix at gmail.com to request tickets, and I'll see you there.
This episode of Filthy Armenian Adventures was recorded in an undisclosed canyon of Los Angeles, California. Opening recited from the novel Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. Supported entirely by patrons on Patreon. Subscribe now at patreon.com slash filthyarmenian to get access to twice as many adventures and join the enlightened society of rug merchants, cigar singers, and oligarchs of the night who keep the lights on at Filthy Armenian Adventureland. Your support will take this show to deeper and wilder dimensions. Spread the word to your friends and enemies. Email filthyarmeniantix at gmail.com if you'd like to attend the first live Filthy Armenian Adventure event in Los Angeles, California on September 23. Leave a rating and review wherever you listen. Follow us on social media at Filthy Armenian. Arrivederci. Thank you for singing along. And to be continued.